and welcome to another Scots Way podcast. And today I am joined by Staff Director Roxana Haynes. Hello, Roxana. Hello, lovely to be here. Um, we're going to start with a question that we've kind of asked everyone who's sat in the seat that you're in. And just could you explain your role in the company? Absolutely. So I have been at Scottish Opera now full-time since January this year. And there are kind of three main strands to the role of staff director. The first one is, kind of as it says on the tin, to be an assistant director for the main stage shows that go on here that then go on to do the tour. So I make sure that the vision of the director is achieved by all departments and link everyone together. Right, okay. So that's one. The second one is that I get to direct some of the smaller scale productions, like opera highlights, um, and other semi-stagings across the, the year, which is very exciting for me. I get to curate and, and be the director as well. And then the third strand is advocating for those other assistant directors, all the kind of creative companies that come in to make the shows. So making sure they have what they need, making sure we're forward planning and in, um, making sure that we're including what they are looking for when we're planning the whole season. Okay, so, so there's a lot of collaboration with nearly everyone else involved. Absolutely, that's why I love the job. You speak to everybody, all the communications there, and it's collaboration with everybody. So how did you get to this role? Could you give us a little bit uh, about your background in theatre and in opera? Sure. So you hit the nail on the head. My background is mostly in theatre, actually. I uh, studied English and drama at Goldsmiths in London and then did my postgrad degree at uh, drama school at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, which one needs a master's to pronounce correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that in uh, a course called Advanced Theatre Practice, which was essentially looking at that collaborative theatre, looking at how everybody works together to be able to make a show or production. So that's kind of my routine. And then immediately before working on in this role, mm-hmm. I was the assistant director at Scottish Opera for Ariadne Afnaxos, directed by Anthony MacDonald um, back in 2018. And that was the, the kind of my introduction to Scottish Opera properly and me being able to see that there was potentially a future with this company and certainly that I wanted there to be one. Yes, because I looked uh, on your website at um, the things you'd worked on in the past and I thought, well, we can't mention all of these because it would take the whole podcast. You've been very <laughs> busy, it seems to me. Um, but how has the role changed through all those different... Um, I guess... How have you seen yourself develop in the role uh, through everything that you've worked on? What an excellent question. I think that I have become more confident in embracing that I am not just one, uh, a creative of one discipline. Yeah. The work that I love the most is when we are collaborating with other people, with you know other art forms, cross-disciplinary. And so the more work I do that kind of encompasses all of those different elements of what art is, but also why we make art, mm-hmm. the work with communities, the work with youth companies, um, working with people with dementia. So I suppose I've become more confident in accepting that I, I love doing each of those aspects. I love all of those elements within a project and that that's okay. I can work on the main stage yes. and assist professionals, but also I can work with children with Asperger's and help them make a show as well. And I can do both things. Because it's an interesting point I hadn't thought about, but um, having done quite a few of these uh, podcasts now and the level of collaboration across the whole company is fascinating. Um, and, you know, educational, but as well as the productions and all of those things. It's why opera is amazing. Yeah. Because it pulls together every element of art. 
and in a way that sometimes we don't always realise when we're in the spectator seat. But actually, it has to include all of these different things for it to be the art form that it is. And I think often people feel, oh, what I have to do is one thing, and I have to do that as well as I can, which is great. But what you're saying is true. No, it's okay to enjoy doing lots of things well and enjoying each aspect of it. So not one becomes maybe primary, but they all work together. Absolutely. Um, because I was looking at the training that you, you'd done as well and the, the puppetry, physical theatre and movement, it just made me think from that's involved in opera. All of those things are involved in opera. Absolutely, and I think we're beginning to tell stories in those different ways too. And opera is um, perhaps a little late to the game, mm -hmm. you know, but now we see it everywhere. We see operas all across the country, all across Europe, that are including these different ways, these different art forms of, and ways of telling stories. The videography, the puppetry, like you said, using it through movement as well. And even working with, um, with instrumentalists that are maybe multidisciplinary, that can play characters as well, God forbid, against those singers that have trained for so long, that maybe even the instruments can be characters too. Yeah. So there's kind of all these different ways of telling stories and opera is just such a rich art form to do that so yeah and it's a I'm blessed to be able to uh, share each of these skills or these qualities in what I'm able to do sometimes it's like a toolbox sometimes someone says to me okay well what, what can we do or what do we need and I say well you know I've got these different things we've got we can see what works next what you need me for how else I can help the project so with a background in theatre what do you think opera has or adds to, to, to theatre the musicality yeah. is, obviously is a, is a clear one, but also there's a sense, of, um, a sense of a fixed time frame that comes with the world of opera and comes with music generally that theatre seems to sometimes is more flexible with. That's the, the main difference that I spot when I work back in theatre, that there is so much time <laughs> between words, between syllables, right. and you can be playful. You'll find actors are still playful with that timing or with that... Uh, shift when you're making a show whereas with opera it is fixed mm -hmm. you know we have we have the conductor in front of us to tell us how to count the time to tell us when a bar is longer to tell us how to measure that so we're all measuring it in the same way and I think that theatre could take some of that from the world of opera and vice versa yeah. if I'm being honest yeah. I think that there can sometimes you know we, we've not reached a state of uh, of post-structuralism within opera yet you know the, the, the playwright the author the composer is still not dead yes, yes. in many of these cases uh -huh. Mozart's work is sacred and yeah. he you know would be rolling in his grave if he knew we were taking a you know a, an axe to his work and yet you know we see these different beautiful productions of Shakespeare all the time yeah. so I think that there is something to be said on both of those parts um, and that theatre can learn from opera in the way that it respects its work and the the time frame, like I said, but also that opera can learn from theatre in, in that way too. And is that partly from the demands, is the wrong word, but the expectations of the audience? You know, I remember um, when there was a lot of new Shakespeare productions in the 80s and 90s and there were people saying, but this is sacred, we should not be doing this, we shouldn't be having, you know, um, it's set in 19... 40 Chicago or something like that and, and I do wonder if there's still a little bit of that with a, an audience expectation of how a Mozart or an opera should be. You're totally right I think there always will be um, but Shakespeare 
didn't create those stories either. Mm-hmm. He stole the stories from Ovid yeah. before, you know, and from classic Greek plays. So there's a sense of uh, of these stories and these characters being revived through these different ways of telling stories. We don't go to see Tosca because we don't know the story. Most people know the story. Yeah. We don't see Romeo and Juliet because we don't know what the yeah, ending is. Yeah, we don't He tells us at the very beginning of the play how it's going to end, but we go to see how the story's told, and I think that's where that's where opera could be um, could, could give that as an offering of the art form. Okay, how are we going to tell this story now? And even more important, sometimes, why are we telling this story now? Another thing that has surprised me, I guess, a little bit since I've started um, going to the opera regularly, is the level of performance and what I mean by that it's not just people singing they're acting as well and um, that struck me recently at the Opera Highlights show that you're directing at the moment um, was there's there's comedy and there's um, tragedy and and everything in between and it really comes across in the performances and is that something which is news to opera or has that kind of always been there? I think that the industry and, and like you say the audience as part of that industry of opera goers, of opera makers, require a lot from opera performers. And I use that word um, specifically. I'm not saying opera singers, because I think that conservatoires are training um, these well-rounded singers and people are now realising that we're asking much more of them than that. Because sometimes, you know, for Ariadne F. Naxos, we ask Jennifer France to be on a trapeze. You know, we, we, there are more circus elements being involved, like you said, the movement, the dancing that's coming up for us in gondoliers. Yeah. You know, we require a lot from these performers because of the way we tell stories. And that's magical. That's why the art form is so great. And that's why there's such a great respect for me, certainly, for anyone who, who has the patience and the, the gut passion to be an opera performer to know and to have that buzz inside you that actually I can make that, I can do that with my body. Yeah. And sometimes I have to remind myself, I pinch myself sometimes in rehearsal rooms when I remember that this is my job. I get to, <laughs> I get to sit three metres away from, you know, from these, these incredible performers yeah. and be present whilst my body is vibrating with the noise that you know, is coming out of, their, of them. It's, it really is incredible. Well, that... that... Let's talk about the Opera Highlights um, tour, because I think um, I've seen a few of them now, and what strikes me is you get that sense of the power of the voice as well as the level of performance, because they're often in smaller spaces. So maybe it's best that you kind of explain what the Opera Highlights tour uh, is. Absolutely. Um, When I came to work on Ariadne of Naxos in 2018, I walked into an office and I looked up at the board and there was a big map of Scotland. And I looked at it and I saw all the little red dots of the places it was going to visit. And I think I said, maybe audibly, maybe in my head, I can't remember, <laughs> I'd love to work on that project. And when I realised that it was opera scenes, that then, you know, and lots of difficulty comes with a show where you're picking out different yes. music highlights, right? These different operatic gems from across the, the years of opera. And so it really is about your cast. And, and I, I stand by that, you know, the sense of requiring a cast to, to totally go with you on, on this journey. If we've got these four weeks to make a show, but I was blessed with a, with a fantastic cast of these opera performers that we were talking about. And each of them brought something that was very um, surprising to the show, but also they brought a lot of themselves. And 
lots of them are in the show, in the different characters, but also, you know, five brains are infinitely better than yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and with our with our fantastic pianist as well, Ian Shaw, it's just the more people that you suddenly got in that room, the better it becomes. And I'd done a lot of work beforehand to kind of excavate this all the text and the musical language and working out how we could curate a narrative that was enjoyable for audiences because the whole idea if we're going to these different remote places to give people a little, a little moment, a little afternoon, an evening of opera, it, you know, it should be enjoyable. You should get of all of the passion and the, um, and the heartbreak that comes with opera because you can't avoid any of those things. No, no. Uh, and you should still have the same quality in terms of voice and music, but also in terms of what you get given in lighting and set and, you know, and staging, stagecraft. So I came at it from that angle. I wanted it to be an evening of entertainment, an evening at the opera, that yes. someone could come in their glad rags or have rocked up in their Wellington boots, yeah. hence the wellies being in the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, you know, you talked about the map of Scotland, and that's exactly what you do. You take it round the whole of Scotland... Um, to town halls and to church halls to any kind of relevant space what's the feedback like as you take it because I've seen it um, I think Cumbernauld Motherwell Eastwood Theatre um, so it's always been just in and around Glasgow where people who might go to the opera in Glasgow it's not far for them to go elsewhere um, but what about these more remote places? What's the, the feedback? So I was really curious about this as well. And what I wanted to try and do was um, remove the sense of performance about it and make the show the, the same thing that we're doing, right? So the show tours, but also the whole concept of the performance is about it being yeah. setting up for a party. So part of that is at the back of the theatre, once we've done in the interval or at the end of the show, there is a tree and people can write their feedback on yeah. the tree. So you can give us immediate feedback, and then the feedback tree, if you will, grows as the tour grows and goes around Scotland. The feedback has been really beautiful. Yeah. And I think it is, um, it's lovely to get that immediate uh, response from an audience, and it's part of the, the lovely thing that the cast are invited to go out to the front of the playing space at the end of the show and offer these, these moments of interaction. Um, because all too often you don't get that in opera you no. don't get that on the stage usually so the kind of the feedback that we've been getting is is that it is you know a, a high art form and that they are very grateful that's been brought to their their church hall or yeah. you know their post office it's not a post office but you know what I mean yeah. it could be yeah. um, and that they want more people want more of this kind of work to, to go around we try to go to different venues every year um, so that we're constantly taking it to different places and trying to find these new beautiful venues because at the heart of every community is somewhere like this. Yes. And that's all that opera really is. It's just about coming in and telling stories. And so that's why I think the project's so magical as a whole. And um, I mean, I don't want to... I won't spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the, you've, you, right from the start, you have this interaction with the audience and, and the performers on stage... Um, um, perhaps more than any show that I've seen previously the reaction that you often get though is when people maybe haven't seen opera live it's, you were saying about sitting in a room and 
you know, almost vibrating from the power of people's voices. That's the thing. You always get gasps when some people hit certain notes or have that powerful thing. You feel such, them yes, absolutely. in your body. You know, sometimes there are certain notes that certain people will, will respond to. Sometimes you get it when a lorry goes past you really quickly and it hits the right frequency in your mm. gut. People get that with opera singers too. You can have a really visceral, physical response to it. And that's okay. It's yes, okay of course. It's to feel great. Like that. It's I mean, it can be a bit discombobulating Absolutely. when you get that. You it know? was for me. You know, I don't come from a background that that had opera in it from growing up. I wasn't in a, in a family that had classical music either. I came to it much later. And that I kind of had to learn that for myself. I had to learn it was okay to cry, yeah. you know. <laughs> Sometimes you get you get so emotional, and part of that in opera highlights was that I wanted people to know it was okay to laugh as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so there's lots of comedy interwoven there as well. But it's it's a real show about about uh, life. You know, there are there are lots of moments of key moments of life in the show because it's a ca- as a catch-all, you know, as a narrative that might relate to anyone. Those moments might relate to to anyone that could come and see the, the piece. And. How difficult is it to come up with? Because you say it's it's different um, songs from different uh, operas, and to get that balance right must take a while. It yeah. really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't underplay it. I worked on this project for six months before I took it to the cast, and but it was because I wanted to take it seriously. And so I kind of, like I said, I, I do think about it as excavating. So I pull back all the layers of it. I work out what the, what the core element of the language is saying, how this character is feeling, whether they're feeling it about another character, if it's a duet. And then I arrange them out on a table. You know, I'm lucky, lucky to have Derek Clark, who's mm-hmm. um, here as our head of music, and he, to be able to pick those pieces for us already. So half of the hard work right. is done. All I'm doing is is kind of pulling together a, a through line, and I needed it to be real. I needed these characters to be real, so we have that empathy and that compassion on stage. Um, and I kind of, which is why I required the cast to help me and to collaborate on the project too. So I pitched them a skeleton outline that I thought could work. There were some options that could have gone either way, yeah. and that's where we found lots of the moments of disguise and the kind of the other general opera cliches that arrive in the opera highlight show i was joking with a colleague the other day that i should have given audience members a bingo card to tick off all of the opera cliches they see (laughs) (laughs) because it might have worked (laughs) but it's interesting as a member of the audience because what i like about them is there are um songs that you'll know and, and melodies that you'll know whether it's from operas or used in movies or even adverts or something like that and then you'll get the ones that you know are, some of them are brand new yeah written specifically and other ones you know you are from rarer operas and things like that so um is, is it that idea that you, you want in some ways to have recognizable pieces and then you can um introduce new things is that a consideration it is and it's from, it's about sharing it's about sharing the our love of the music and of this way of telling stories with other people and so naturally with that some of the songs you might know like you know the gondoliers or like you said with the the flower duet being the BA advert that kind of stuff is things that people might recognize even if they don't quite know why they recognize it or where they recognize it from but then even for us even for the performers some of the songs that Derek had picked 
were ones that they had never come across before either. I'd never heard of the, the Radegor duet, which is gorgeous, mm. and I would now love to, to do that piece. Um, and similarly, the Vaughan Williams Blue Larkspur in a Garden duet for tenor and soprano is just one of the most magical things I've ever heard. You know, and our encore, which, yes. which was, uh, is, a, is a gem <laughs> picked by Derek as well. But we really do rely on his brain, on his fantastic knowledge and the kind of the depth and breadth of opera, operetta, light music, you know, everything, to then, to then take it with that joy and to lace through a narrative that we can then present. Yeah. When you go to see it at uh, Theatre Royal, obviously part of the, the, the projection of the voice is to reach the back of it and the back. And then having seen it in a, you know, a few civic centres and halls now, you really are kind of like literally kind of blown away. I'm just thinking of, you know, if you were in, you mentioned the post office mm. or the equivalent, then that would be quite something, you know, it would be really a, a really powerful thing to kind of see. And to be part of. Yeah. Like that was, and that's the kind of, you were saying about the interaction and the engagement at the beginning of the show, that I really did want the audience to feel like they were the ones invited to the party, yeah. you know, and the performers are there as well. They also don't know whose party it is. Yes. That's just the way. Well, it worked a treat. I don't think I've ever seen any kind of theatre stage where the people on stage seem to be so invested and so enjoying it as much as they were. And, and that just feeds into the audience as well, because then, as you see, it feels not only that they're able to laugh, but they're able to relax as well. They have a great time, and so we are allowed to have a great time, and that's what any, for me, what any kind of theatre should do. Um, to move away from it, I could talk to you about opera highlights for a long time, but I have to say, but um, you've also directed Foxtrot. Yes, I did. So, uh, explain a little bit about that. So, Foxtrot uh, is the education department here, new commission uh, by a composer called Liam Patterson. Liam wrote uh, the Bambino, which happened last yeah. year, and did its wonderful, big, very successful tour. Um, so, Foxtrot is its sister, essentially, right. okay. and it is for the next age group up. It's for... 12 to 24 months, one to two years. So we're talking toddlers. We're yeah. talking brand new territory. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I did a lot of work on the kind of the development age here and looking at the, the different places where they are neurologically, but also what they're exploring physically, yeah. where they are in their space. And I, we wanted to create a character that could be relatable to this. So Fox is the same height as a toddler um, and so is on eyeline all the time. And Fox isn't quite sure what it's like to be a fox yet. Right. And uh, kind of explores its surroundings and its world and pulls away from its parent, from Vixen, um, in a similar way that the toddlers are experiencing the world just now. So the whole space designed by Giuseppe and Emma Belli is a free roam space. <laughs> so it's a big kind of dance floor um, with uh, beautiful leaf patterns and... and gorgeous different blues and oranges that the children are totally able to roam in and pick up leaves and put them in their mouths, stick them up their nose, whatever they want to do with them. So it's a free free state for them to follow Fox on this journey of finding finding who Fox is. And what was the reaction of your tots? Oh, it was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I went to lots and lots of those shows. Lots of the time as a director, you have to leave your project to let it go and, and roam. But I, there was something in me that couldn't quite leave Foxtot because of the joyful responses. Yeah. Every show was different because the children were encouraged to engage and to make it their own thing. And we, 
my a highlight for me was that we had incorporated uh, some sign language into mm-hmm. the choreography of the of the show. So the general physical language was one of 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 some very simple BSL, and I am indebted to Jamie Ria and to um, Jennifer Bates to who helped me with with that, and they. So for some of the children that came, there was a little a little boy who came and had two hearing aids in. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I think maybe that audience member and parent wouldn't have been able to experience the show in the same way. Sure. You know, and they didn't bring their child knowing that it was it was going to be accessible in that mm-hmm. way. But actually it made a big difference to them. And, you know, just little tiny things like that. And also, you know, the there's a puppetry in that too, and so the children stealing the tail of the fox, and you know, then the whole story goes up in the air, and we have to try something else because the tail isn't where it should be, and the bellies created these enormous um, versions of the sun and the moon mm-hmm. in, on gimbals that were tactile. So the sun was yellow and fluffy, and the moon had these incredible. Our props department here were were incredible with it. Had these like craters in them, and with these little holes, they were different textures and fabrics that looked like anemones you know it was it was incredible so the children would literally gravitate towards these objects when they came yeah. on stage and would by the end of it would help push the sun on its on its orbit which for me was the most satisfying thing because they're able to take part in the storytelling it's such an important thing to do i'm thinking when i first started going to theater with my parents or whatever and it was very much you know children are seen and not heard and sit still and don't fidget and all these kind of things and there was a little bit of oh this is an adult world it's not really for me yet mm-hmm. if it ever is but yeah you know to introduce them at that age uh, to every aspect of it you know it, this is okay it's okay to um enjoy this in any way that you see fit yeah to make Such noise as well you know parents were very tentative and wanted to hold their children back a lot of the time or to to shush them but so we frequently would have to tell parents you can let them go. They are safe. We have made a safe world for them to explore. <laughs> so they don't quite believe us all the time, but it, it is it's true. So um, what, uh, what are you doing next? What's next for you? So I am currently assistant director on Tosca, right. which we are in our last week of studio rehearsals for. We head into the theatre next week. Um, and that is bound to be a fantastic production. Yeah. It's the Anthony Besh revival from 1980, and yet it still has this amazing poignancy and, and relative um, connection to today, especially with all the political spheres that are being thrown up. The production is set in um, 1943, so it's, there's still a sense of, of, of now about it yeah. and about uh, something that's still very much in our, present in our minds. Um, and then I am working on almost every show at Scottish Opera next year. <laughs> so we get, I'll be on uh, Nixon in China, then I get the pleasure of reviving Opera Highlights with a new cast, um, then we'll do Midsummer Night's Dream, and I'll be then reviving Foxtot, and then we move into Gondoliers and Utopia Limited. So it's a busy year. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule when it's time to talk to us, Roxana. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll be back soon with someone else from Scottish Opera. Cheers. Mm-hmm.